Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, should a judge be the one to review the Red Hill fiasco? NDP leader Andrew Horvath also joined us to discuss the Red Hill and to urge for a ministry of mental health. And also, Jody Wilson-Raybould has resigned from the Liberal cabinet. What's the latest? Well, you'll find out. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Later today, uh, when Hamilton City Council convenes, all eyes are going to be uh, on the councillors themselves to determine exactly what they're going to do about this Red Hill Valley fiasco. Uh, I, we know the story. I don't want to get too deeply into this right now, but we will, I guess, in the conversation. Uh, there was a report that uh, indicated that there were some shortcomings with the, uh, the the road surfaces itself that was never shown to council, and certainly never shown to the public. Uh, that came to light a few days ago. Uh, there's been a hue and cry to get something done about this, and one of the suggestions that seems to be going forward, as a matter of fact, uh, Councillor Brad Clark is going to present that motion today, is uh, for the City Council to endorse a judicial inquiry into this. Ontario NDP leader Andrea Horvath, who of course is an MPP for the Hamilton area, is on side with that, as a lot of other people are, but is that the best way to go? Should a judge actually be the one to review the Red Hill fiasco? I want to bring Paul Cavaluzzo into the uh, conversation. Paul is a senior partner and co-founder in Cavaluzzo LLP and uh, some expertise in this. Paul, thank you for jumping on today. I'm glad you could join us before this very important meeting with Hamilton City Council. Oh, you're welcome, Bill. Let me ask you right up front about this, about how to proceed with something like this. There's, there's always a concern, and, and, and as I'm sure you know now, uh, Hamilton's council, or Hamilton Council's first reaction to this when they got this information after, I guess it was a three- or four-hour meeting behind closed doors, was, well, we'll let our Auditor General handle this. Uh, and, and that, to me, and I think a lot of other people, sent up a lot of, a lot of red flags. Uh, my impression is, look, at this has to be outside eyes if you want to have a totally objective approach to this. What are your thoughts? Well, if, uh, if the situation is that the public has lost confidence in the council's ability and capacity to deal with this particular problem, then perhaps it makes a lot of sense uh, to have a judicial inquiry. There are many many pluses uh, to a judicial inquiry you know the downside always is that it's uh, pretty expensive and uh, at the same time it takes a bit of time uh, depending on how the judge conducts it but if the level of the of the public's lack of confidence is such that um, you require something to be done then it seems to me that a judicial inquiry would uh, bring a lot of benefits to this particular problem. Now, I don't know the uh, the auditor here for the city of Hamilton. Uh, I, I know people that do and say he's a wonderful guy, very upfront, etc., and a very talented individual, and, and I'll take that at uh, their word. But he's a city employee, and and it's the old adage, I guess, here, Paul, that, look, it, for, for, for justice to be here and for objectivity to be here, uh, not only can there be no bias, but there can't even be a perception of bias. That's correct, and that's the problem. I'm sure the Auditor General is a, is a great person, but the problem is is that he lacks the independence that a Superior Court judge has. A Superior Court judge has a tenure, and uh, whatever he or she decides has absolutely no bearing on their capacity as a, as a judge because they don't have to worry about uh, employers as an auditor, auditor General would, and it's that independence that is so crucial in respect of these public or judicial uh, inquiries, and, and certainly the Auditor General can't offer that kind of independence. Now, if, uh, in fact, Council goes forward with this, and that seems to be the indication at this stage, uh, maybe you could give us a, a, a picture here, Paul, as to what kind of powers, what, what ability a judicial inquiry would have when it comes to investigations. Well, that's the important uh, aspect, because uh, under under a judicial inquiry, and there have been 
a number of municipalities that have had um, inquiries in the recent past, such as Mississauga, Toronto, and Ottawa. Uh, and there's one about to take place in Collingwood. Yeah, I've been reading on that. I spent a fair bit of time up there, and uh, that's, yeah. it's a very contentious item with the sale of a utility. And uh, and again, they, fi- I think, wisely decided, let's take it out of our hands, and they, they went this option. That's right. So what the, what the benefits of a judicial inquiry are, there, there are many, and just let me summarize a few of them. The first is that a judge would have access to all of the relevant documents and witnesses. In other words, all of the relevant information. Uh, would be given to him or her because he would have uh, subpoena power. So that's very, very important, and the public would be aware that, you know, the judge is going to have access to all this information, and and he he or she would go wherever the trail leads, so to speak. The other important aspect is that the hearings are normally public, and this is a situation, it seems to me, that the public has lost confidence in the council because of their failure to disclose that or the employees, because they just fail to disclose that report. And so it's important to have a public inquiry to see witnesses examined and cross-examined, because that kind of public testimony brings transparency to the process, brings accountability to the process, and it seems to me that uh, uh, that is certainly lacking in, in Hamilton today because of what has happened. Well, the other element of this, too, is is this idea, as you say, about transparency. And I, I know in re- response to that, a number of communities have also brought in integrity commissioners, and there's one here in Hamilton, too, uh, and there's a debate about how efficient that actually is. But the reality is, is whatever investigation the integrity commissioner undertakes uh, is done without any public knowledge. It's not a public hearing. All of a sudden, he just says, I'm done. Here's my report. Well, who did you talk to? What do they say? You don't really know because it's all through his eyes. This is this is a very public forum, and that's a, a huge difference, I would think, for people that are looking for answers here. That's correct. That, and that's the problem with the, you know, whether it be the Integrity Commission or an Ethics Commissioner, the Ombudsman, and so on and so forth, is they don't have public hearings. And, and this is a real public issue in Hamilton now, and the public's going to want to know what went down and and the best way they can know is to be able to attend these hearings and quite frequently these hearings are on um, are on cable television so that if a citizen wanted to sit down one day and watch it uh, he or she could and that's what the judicial inquiry brings to bear that these other avenues of redress really don't and and once again this isn't a criticism of the integrity commissioner or whoever it's just that a judicial inquiry is public. It's a public inquiry, and I think that's what the public needs at this time. And and obviously, the subpoena power is a huge advantage in a situation like this. That's correct. And and uh, and you know, a subpoena power is a legal process, and if you don't comply with a subpoena, there are legal consequences. So uh, they're very effective way of getting all of the relevant information. So in a case like this, then Paul, if this inquiry were to go forward, and and we can do, I guess even talk about this in a more general term with some of the ones that have taken place. Uh, with that subpoena power and under judicial inquiry, uh, they're, t- they're, they're giving testimony under oath then, are they not? They, they are. They're giving testimony under oath, or if, they're, you know, if, they're, uh, if they want to, they can affirm uh, their evidence. But uh, clearly, such evidence is given under compulsion, and at the same time, if you perjure yourself, you're subject to a, to a criminal uh, prosecution. Uh, and we're seeing this uh, again. Uh, obviously, it's not relevant to what we're doing, but just on process alone with some of the stuff that's going on down in the states with uh, Senate investigations, the Mueller investigation, et cetera, like this. Uh, simply appearing before a committee is one thing, but actually having to go under oath, uh, uh, you're putting yourself in a rather precarious position if you don't play ball with them. 
Absolutely, and because of the prospect of a perjury uh, prosecution, uh, you usually tell the truth. You mentioned the time on this. Let's let's talk a little bit about that because uh, an awful lot of people, in in you know, the light of what they found out about this hidden report, are want to get answers right away. Uh, uh, justice moves slowly, doesn't it, Paul? I mean, you've been in the business for a long, long time. You don't get anything with the snap of your fingers. That's right, it does, because it's a very thorough and comprehensive review of what happened. Uh, the way to deal with that, though, is sometimes in the, um, uh, the terms of reference given to the judge, a time limit is set. And that way the judge has to complete the, uh, his or her job within that time, and that makes it a lot more timely. So it, it's, we have to be patient about this, but obviously the, the, the whole process here is that it's a, it's a much more in-depth process then. And uh, are there any restrictions at all on, on a judicial inquiry where they can and cannot go? Well, the only restriction is, is that the, uh, the judge cannot find legal liability. Uh, the, you know, obviously the judge will say, uh, you know, John Smith did this and he shouldn't have done that. and He should, uh, you know, he should uh, change that in the future and uh, change his conduct in the future. But there's no finding of, of liability. In other words, there's no criminal charges resulting from that or there's no civil, uh, civil liability. Um, but the other, you know, the other aspect that I think is important in terms of a judicial inquiry, it really has two purposes. One, the judge will answer what happened and why it happened, which is important, and I think all of the citizens of Hamilton want to know. Uh, and the second thing is that the judge can make policy recommendations so that this kind of um, problem does not occur in the future. And so there's a policy aspect as well. Um, in, a, in other words, if procedures are inadequate and that's resulted in this kind of problem, then the judge will make recommendations for the future so that this kind of problem does not recur. But if he, uh, to use the expression, I mean, finds something under one rock, is he, he's okay to turn over another rock and another rock as they, as they become available uh, to find a, the, the wherefore and the why? Absolutely, absolutely. And that is, you know, and once again, the judge is independent and impartial, and he or she will go wherever the evidence leads. Uh, I want to reference back, as you mentioned, the, the one of the Mississauga a few years ago that involved uh, then-Mayor Hazel McCallion, and I believe right. off the top of my head it had to do with a conflict of interest, and it was some land dealings that her son actually did, or was involved in, or may have benefited by, I guess that was the accusation at the time. Uh, and you mentioned that the, the judge in a review like this doesn't actually have the ability to lay charges. But once the report is out there, I guess there's an evaluation that can go on because of that, is there not? That's correct. Uh, that's usually what happens. Like in this particular case, I, I understand that there, there have been a number of injuries and deaths, and there's a, a suggestion of uh, some kind of class action. Well, you know, what will happen, the class action lawyers will, uh, will use the report. Uh, in terms of their uh, civil action, and at the same time, the police may review the report to determine whether there's any criminal liability. Is the so stuff? Although the yeah, although the judge can't make findings of legal liability, others will use the report in order to do that. I, I was going to ask you then, if in fact, well, let's let's go down that road. If police are developing a, a protocol where they say, "Look, at, I, this is something kind of dodgy here." Uh, can they use the elements of that report as as, as data, uh, as as testimony, or as, is that legitimate now because it was given under oath? Well, they can, but there are some charter protections, so that uh, uh, it's a complicated area. But there are some charter protections, and that is that if you're compelled to give testimony because of uh, 
because of um, uh, subpoena, like in this kind of judicial inquiry. You have an argument uh, that that evidence cannot be used against you at a criminal trial because it would defy the presumption. Okay. So then if police, again, to to use that scenario, are thinking, wait a second here, I think we need to take this a step further. They really need to initiate their own investigation then. Yeah, what they would do, they could still use the report, except that they, you know, obviously if someone testified under compulsion by way of a subpoena, the police could use that information and, and come up with other witnesses. It's not a difficult thing to do if you're, if you're uh, you know, conducting a thorough investigation. I, I mean, I understand we're getting way down the road of speculation here because there's no sniff of any criminal charges at this stage. But when you start a review, you just don't know what you're going to find an awful lot of the time. So we just That's wanted right. to, to cover that off. Uh, you talked about the class action lawsuit, which is a gray area for a lot of people. This is one of these things, Paul, we hear about you know, on movies and television. I guess they do it a lot more in the States. It's not done, from what I understand, uh, to a great extent up here in Canada. Uh, how does some, a process like that work? As, uh, we, as you mentioned, there there is some consideration for it at this stage. Uh, and, right. and and obviously this would be in the victims. And uh, I, I would think that that's going to be predicated to a great extent about what the judge finds if, in fact, this judicial review goes forward. That's right. It, and, you know, for example, I was the commission counsel in Walkerton and a class action developed out of that. But a class action in Canada now is becoming more and more popular. And what it does, it, it, it basically permits uh, a lot of people who are suffering from the same event or the same uh, tragic incident to get together in a class uh, and to, um, you know, prosecute, uh, to find out, uh, civilly to prosecute. And what it does, it uh, the lawyer... Uh, usually takes on the case on a contingency basis, and that is like he, he or she would get usually 30% of the ultimate damages that come out of the class action. However, if they lose, the lawyer gets nothing. And so that's the way it's usually done on a contingency basis. And it's a very effective way for a lot of people who couldn't afford individually to sue a city or a manufacturer, whatever it might be, uh, but get together with a number of people and to um, and to sue. And if if they lose, then they do not owe any legal fees. And if they win, the lawyer will take a chunk of it. Who's eligible? Uh, I mean, we know there were some fatalities, sadly, on that right. stretch of road. Uh, but there, listen, there have been a number of other collisions that have occurred there. I mean, if 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 I slid into a guardrail and, and sustained a number of you know dollars damage to my car, maybe banged up my neck or something, do I call uh, whoever's in charge of the thing and say, "Hey, I want in on this," or are they eligible? Well, they would be they would be eligible. The, the courts are careful to ensure that the class uh, consists of people who are basically suffered from the same kind of um, civil wrong and. Here, obviously, the fatalities, injuries, and, and even uh, damage to cars might be part of the class. So it could be a broad class of people. I mean, the one that comes to mind immediately when you talk class action, I guess, was the one that was a famous one down in the States against the tobacco industry, which actually eventually proved successful. Uh, but those were That's people right. that were obviously harmed because of the, of the nicotine and tobacco and, and, and the, the lies, obviously, that that industry put forward. But that took an awfully long time. I would imagine any class action suit, uh, there's an investment of time in that. Huge investment of time, and it takes years. It takes years because, first of all, the the class has to get certified by the court, and once it's certified, then it has to prosecute. And fortunately, many of them are settled. Uh, you know, after the class is certified, many defendants will settle rather than going through a long trial. 
but will settle, and and the court has to approve the settlement to ensure that it's a. Uh, it's adequate enough for the people and that the lawyer is just not making a quick deal in order to get some money. And again, we're going down this road of speculation where I have no idea that right. this is actually going to happen. I did have one right. question, though, that, that a listener raised the other day when this whole idea about a class action came out. Uh, these injuries that occurred, and in some cases fatalities, uh, were a couple of years ago, and I would imagine that there's been some sort of a settlement uh, that's out there already. Uh, uh, does that supersede a class action suit? Do they come back and say, I'm sorry, you've already been dealt with, or do you just start with a, a fresh sheet? Well, if, you, if, you, if you're talking about someone that's already sued and, uh, and uh, they've received a settlement, then they wouldn't uh, be entitled to, uh, to sue because normally... If they reached a settlement, there would be what's called a release, and they would release the uh, whoever the defendant is from any further liability so that they would not be part of a new class. And even if there was an insurance settlement, there's a release involved in that too, is there not? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Okay, and, and obviously that's a legal document, so they'd have some hassles getting involved in that. Oh, without question. It would be very, virtually impossible to get around a good release. Uh, well, question from my part. I, I, I knew you were going to come on today, so I just kind of gathered a number of the emails I've received over the last little while with questions about this, hoping that you could answer them, and you've been great about this. Uh, how do they select the judge? If and counsel moves forward on this uh, and says, okay, this is what we're going to do, what's the next step, and, and who shows up at the door and says, I'm, I'm the person? Well, normally... Um, uh, Normally, the um, uh, the counsel will ask the chief justice of the superior court. Uh, they may have somebody in mind as to who might be good, or they may just ask the um, uh, chief justice of the superior court to appoint uh, a judge of the superior court so that uh, ultimately it's in the hands of the chief justice of the superior court. So, and is there a methodology to that? No, it's it's quite a quite an informal um, it's quite an informal uh, uh, process. As I say, sometimes whether it be the provincial government or the city determines that uh, uh, you know, Joan Smith would be a great person because she's knowledgeable in in uh, you know highway fatalities that kind of thing. And what would happen there is the city would contact the chief justice and ask if uh, Joan Smith could be appointed as the judicial commissioner in respect of this particular problem, and then the chief justice would have to make the decision. And usually the chief justice would cooperate if the city wanted this particular person, and that's who it uh, would be. I mean, you were involved in the Walkerton, as you mentioned. Uh, was, right. was there any criteria for Justice O'Connor being appointed to that, or was he just uh, the one that they asked? I mean, there was any expertise that he had that maybe others didn't have? Well, he had such a reputation, uh, and uh, he was the uh, Associate Chief Justice of Ontario at that time, mm-hmm. and uh, he, was, uh, he was appointed by the, uh, uh, by the provincial government. And, of course, they had to get the okay of the Chief Justice at the time, Roy McMurtry, and uh, Roy agreed that Dennis would be perfect for the job. Well, it was a very thorough report, as we call it in hindsight. Uh, we'll find out later today just how council is going to approach this. Paul, I'm so glad you had some time to talk to us about this and uh, clear the air on a number of issues. Appreciate your time. Okay, okay you're welcome, Bill. Take care. Paul Cavaluzzo, of course, senior partner and co-founder of Cavaluzzo LLP, uh, who's had some experience with judicial reviews, and we'll see just what city council does and certainly follow up uh, with their uh, results and their recommendations from later on today. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Later on today, Hamilton City Council meets, and uh, I think right at the top of the agenda is going to be what they're going to do about the Red Hill 
Uh, first of all, the, uh, the the report that was never given to city council or to the public, for that matter, about road safety. Uh, and, uh, well, obviously a number of other issues that have resulted. We talked with uh, Paul Cavaluzzo last hour, a prominent lawyer uh, who's been involved in judicial inquiries and suggesting that may be the way to go. A number of people have weighed in on this. We're going to hear from a couple of them in this segment. Uh, Sam Marilla is going to join us, who's been very vocal about uh, the staff reports on this uh, in the past. But uh, also weighing in is Ontario NDP leader and leader of the opposition uh, in the Ontario legislature, Andrea Horvath, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Andrea, thanks for jumping in today. really appreciate the time. Oh, my pleasure, Bill. I read your uh, media release about this the other day. One of the things you called for was for the province to release reports. Uh, you can check that box. I guess the minister's decided to do that today. Yeah, I'm really pleased. Uh, I, I, you know, there's times when you got to do the right thing, and I think the minister saw that, uh, you know, this is a huge issue for our community, and, um, you know, regardless of where you live in Hamilton, uh, this uh, roadway has been controversial in terms of the accidents, and so, um, you know, this is one of those times where I say thank you to the Minister of Transportation for heeding the call to be open and transparent about, uh, you know, what um, the Ministry of Transportation had on file when it came to tests that had been done in the past. Well, and that's one of the questions that, that I'd like to see answered, and I saw, just based on what you released the other day, uh, it's a question that's on your mind, too, is who knew what? And it, it, it goes beyond the city, doesn't it? It, it really does, and, and it raises all kinds of questions. I mean, uh, just and you and I have both sat around that council table for councillors to be able to make uh, decisions that are appropriate. They need the appropriate uh, information. And again, I think that's one of the big swirling questions here. Uh, how could the, the council do its due diligence if it didn't have uh, the necessary information? And it raises all kinds of other questions about current standards in Ontario. Are they adequate? Do we need to look to be- best practices in other jurisdictions when it comes to, uh, you know, the kinds of testing that's done and the, and the um, standards that uh, we have in place? Uh, you know, lots of times the government, this particular government, talks about these kinds of things as if they're red tape, but in fact they're not red tape. They're about public safety. Uh, they're about, you know, making sure that standards are in place uh, so that when, you know, major infrastructure uh, projects like this are built, uh, we have a level of uh, security, uh, a level, a sense of, um, you know, confidence that our infrastructure is going to be safe. Well, and I've raised that issue in the past, and I'm very concerned, and I know you are too, about some of the uh, pending legislation that you're going to be dealing with uh, in Queen's Park. Uh, one person's red tape is another person's health, health and safety standards. And uh, and I'm not suggesting that somebody turned their back on what was going on, but obviously uh, there was something that went on here with this construction, and, and we know there have been reports filed. And, and the question we've got is uh, how much of that was known at Queen's Park? Was anything done about it at that level? Clearly not, because we didn't hear about it. Uh, and so this 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 is going to be interesting to see exactly just what uh, what rocks are going to be turned over in this review and what they're going to find out. Well, I mean exactly, and I think that's why your previous um, uh, call, your previous uh, guest, as well as a number of others, um, have called for uh, a judicial inquiry or a judicial review because we know that those, the, you know, the, the the greatest number of rocks to be overturned uh, can only be overturned when you can subpoena documents and when you can call witnesses and uh, and and that get right down into the uh, nitty gritty. And I think. 
the people of Hamilton deserve no less when it comes to uh, to this roadway. And, and look, it's not about you know necessarily bla- uh, you know laying blame or pointing fingers, but it's about certainly giving you know the you know peace and closure to the families that were devastated by loss of loved ones. Uh, it's also you know giving the people of Hamilton some assurance that lessons will be learned uh, from mistakes in the past. And and the only way you can do that is with a thorough thorough investigation as to uh, what's gone on here. Well, and I'm glad the minister complied uh, with your request and, and the, the I guess the bellows that we've heard from well, this corner certainly and others as well uh, to release these reports because as we mentioned this is not a singularly Hamilton issue uh, because we know that in that 2015 report uh, the Ministry of Transportation was asked uh, about these tests and they do have some data on stuff like this and I know the minister is releasing that now. Minister York's going to release that. That's great but I'd, I'd like to see that. What's in those reports and why weren't they made public? Well, I mean, exactly, and that's that's a big uh, question that remains uh, unanswered. And so, uh, again, I think we'll get a better a better sense of it. Uh, and it's, I think find it interesting that the way it's being couched right now uh, is that the uh, the data that they have, the testing that was done, wasn't done to have anything to do with the Red Hill Creek Expressway, but rather uh, to ch- test the material views to see if it was adequate for provincial highways. Well. Let's face it, whether you're driving on a, on, a, on a local expressway or on a provincial highway, the safety standards should be the same. And so uh, let's, uh, let's get a handle around, as I said, uh, what should be the standard across Ontario, regardless of who's constructing the road. And, and you'll know that much of this you know, issue of, of these kinds of roadways um, you know, being uh, the responsibility of municipalities comes from the downloading that occurred by the Conservative government when uh, you and I were both on council. Yep. Yeah, well, and that uh, we knew that was going to come back and bite us, and clearly that's a, an element that has to be considered here. Listen, I, I know you're busy, and I want to let you go, but there's another issue that I wanted to touch on uh, while I've got you here. Uh, we did a segment a couple of uh, weeks ago, I guess now, uh, from a gentleman in Guelph who's been very, very proactive, and I know you you know of him, uh, to it, I guess really to pressure the, the Ontario government right now to develop a Ministry of, Public, or of Mental Health uh, yeah. In light of some of the things that have gone on, now, uh, what as opposition leader, how can you move that forward, Andrea? Well, I mean, first and foremost, the the the, the tragedy that that young man uh, under uh, experienced was horrendous. But losing both his his parents to mental health issues, uh, you know, one and then a couple of years later, the other, uh, as a result of the initial uh, tragedy, and so uh, and so the the courage he's showing is amazing, and, and it, it really he, he's he's basically following up on a call uh, that uh, we've been making for many years now, as uh, when we were third party, we're continuing to make that call as official opposition. It was a plat- a plank of our platform. Uh, Last time around, because the, the problem that occurs is mental health and, and addictions. You know, they, they get, get into the news. You know, the fentanyl crisis, or somebody, um, you know, being, uh, uh, for example, leaving the the West Fifth facility in Hamilton, for a local example, right? And and we hear about all kinds of these issues. You know, as one off. But the problem is the, you know, the whole ball of wax, if you will, uh, in terms of the mental health system is completely fractured. It's fragmented, it's a patchwork system, and it's completely different in terms of access to services, uh, no matter, you know, depending on where you are in the, in the province. I mean, we have children at this point in time, children waiting up to 18 months an average of 18 months, as a matter of fact, uh, for, for uh, mental health services and supports, which means if you're, for example, if your parents were in a terrible accident and, and passed away, you wouldn't be able to get the counseling that you need to help you through that uh, until a year and a half later. I mean, it's cruel. It's, uh, it's, it's terrible. And we know that these kinds of crises become worse 
uh, as they um, as they uh, go and and uh, address right these these things become worse in their people's mental health and their outcomes uh, in terms of um, uh, overcoming uh, these uh, ch- challenges they become become less less uh, fulsome over time and so for all kinds of reasons we need to get a focus on mental health and addictions we don't need to just keep talking about it when it comes up on a on a on a kind of a, a momentary basis, and so that's why we think a ministry uh, would be the exact solution that we need to create uh, some standards, to create some expectations, to create some goals and some targets uh, that we can um, that we can achieve. Because we've been talking about this bill for well over a decade here in this province. Well, it's front of center right now. And when I talked to Noah Irvine the, uh, a couple of days ago, I mean, I was so impressed with uh, his his proactive attitude on this. He's a guy who's done his homework on this, and here's hoping that uh, you can champion this and get the the minister of health to come on side. Andrea, thanks so much for this. Appreciate the time. We'll stay in touch. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Opposition leader, of course, Andrea Horvath. Uh, as we mentioned, I want to get into the back now. I just want to, that was a sidebar issue, but I hadn't talked to, the, to Ms. Horvath about that for the longest time. And it's something that we want to put out there because I think it's something that, uh, as you heard, if you heard the interview with Noah Irvine on this show a couple of weeks ago, that, uh, that the government really should consider. Now, let's get back to the issue at hand, which is Red Hill. I want to bring uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula back into the conversation. Sam, of course, was a guest of ours last Friday on the program. Uh, and was uh, very concerned about city staff and about relationships uh, and about investigation and finding out exactly what happened and why this report was never put forward. Uh, Sam, thanks for jumping on. I know it's a busy day for you guys down at City Hall. Uh, Since you and I talked a couple of days ago, is there any one of your council colleagues right now that doesn't see the the value in moving forward with an inquiry into this now? Well, no one uh, on city council um, uh, doesn't support being open and transparent, but we need to really this very complex issue into chronological order as well as an understanding that the road is safe if it's, if it's used as prescribed. And I can't overemphasize that enough. We also have to recognize one thing, that upon council being made aware of this by, by staff, we have put together a plan of action, and we did so, and it was in incremental. So the, the original plan of action... Uh, before others started stepping over each other's toes to try to get ahead of the game, is to have uh, the internal AG, who has the power of an attorney general, investigate. And I don't question Charles' integrity, and I'm hoping this community isn't either. At the end of the day, from that, if we weren't satisfied with the outcome of that investigation, what I had suggested was a public inquiry, and I even suggested a police investigation, And at that point, we thought, rather than throwing it all out to the community, let's look at this systemically and incrementally and ensure we're open, transparent, and we have the evidence to move forward as we move along. This thing is far from being over, and we're not going to solve it overnight. But we're not going to solve it overnight, particularly if we're providing misinformation. The road is safe. If, if it's traveled as prescribed, it always has been, it will continue to be, and people need to be made aware of it. The reporting question, and Councillor Collins and I, since 2013, all of those reports that were generated were generated politically from Councillor Collins and I, starting back from January 16, 2013, which led to the information report, um, which led uh, Jerry Davis at that time, to put together the information report outlining the friction testing, the inverted profile markings, the wide markings, the slippery when wet signs, the enforcement travel speeds, all of that. 
So the, the friction testing itself is in that, and it was costed at 10000 at that time. So as, a, as you know, the road is, u- is safe if used as prescribed. There are three issues at hand here in the studies. What are those? And the three issues are this. Geometry, as I mentioned, speed, and the road being wet. So if someone is speeding and the, red, the road is wet, within that geometry of the area, we decrease the, decrease the speed, then probability increases, and there have been states where collisions, collisions have increased. We have millions and millions, literally, of cars traveling that every day. And we have had accidents, but we've had millions of cars that haven't had accidents. But out of those accidents, the police will tell you, and the report, the engineers will tell you, that more than half of them were related to human error and or intoxication of, of THC and or alcohol, speed, or other, uh, traf- or other traffic errors. So let's just put that in perspective. And also, the friction testing at any given time, no matter where you are, needs to be repeated. The, the question is, why did Mr. Moore not release that particular well, that's, 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 and you and I had that discussion on Friday, Sam. Yeah. This is but, not so much about road safety, and I'm not trying to belittle that because some people have some concerns about that, and I'm sure that'll be addressed uh, in the fullness of time in the, this report comes out. But there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a structural and a procedural concern here that, that I know you were upset about, and I talked to a number of your colleagues about just, that. I'm just trying to deduce it down to that, though. So I get that. The question is. Well, okay. I, know, I know you have to kind of sift through some of the bombast here to get to the real facts here, and, and I'm cool. sure you guys will do that. But, w- but what I'm hearing from you now, uh, I I know one of your colleagues is going to present a motion today uh, requesting a judicial review. Is that premature in your mind? Well, somewhat, but also I, I think we want all the information to be released. We want a, an independent third party to do the investigation. We also know that the province is, is asking for us to investigate, which is unprecedented, which I welcome. And because of that, I'd love to see the AG provincially um, be, be the oversight of this. So it becomes third party. It's out of our hands. And preferably, if the province wants to pay for it, since they're asking for the investigation, I want to I want to exhaust that avenue first. And I know Andrea Horvath has stated that she wants one. God bless her. Pay for it, and that would be even better. And and they can go hands on and even control the terms of reference of that investigation. But Sam, you know, first of all, uh, and I've heard nothing but great things about your Auditor General. His reputation is impeccable, but he is a city employee. Is there a concern there that somebody within that organization doing the investigation, uh, there's a concern about about possible bias or possible interference or possible any relationships getting involved? But Bill, where does it end? So federally, the the AG that investigates uh, is paid by the federal government. So are you are you suggesting that their integrity is in question? No, I'm su- but no, but I'm just saying the for instance uh, the ethics commissioner who's now investigating the prime minister is is in the same situation because he's an appointee from the prime minister. So I you're exactly. right Sam. I mean you can go down this rabbit hole as much well, deeply as you end? want. Again, it's at the end of the day if you appoint the proper people their integrity shouldn't be in question. And I understand the perception of it, but you you and I both know it's not the reality. But to deal with the perception, absolutely. I welcome. I even suggested the police be called that night. But, again, if you go that route, then all of a sudden you're grandstanding. If you do it incrementally, suddenly you're not doing enough. You know, in some circles you can never win. So, but the best approach is to ensure that you're actually following it with due diligence and ensuring that incrementally you're going to get to that end result. But you can't be knee-jerk and, and, and on everything that, that the public comes forward with, especially when they're acting in some ways incredibly responsible. Again, millions of cars travel that road. 
yes, there have been accidents. But yes, the, the engineers and the police will tell you that the vast majority of those accidents were related to impairment or driver error. Nothing to do with friction, which is only one isolated issue in safety of a road. And again, we 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 don't want to make that determination. I'm not an engineer as to what kind of an impact that's that had and how much. Have, of, I get that. We have a lot of armchair engineers out there right now, um, really misinforming the public, and and that's where it becomes irresponsible. And we need to stand up to that kind of nonsense. Sam, we'll see how the meeting goes later on this afternoon. Uh, a pack a lunch. It's probably going to be a long afternoon slash evening for you today. Uh, every day is, but at the end of the day, <laughs> we'll get the job done. Thanks a lot, Sam. Appreciate the time Thank today. You. That's uh, Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula. Uh, that's the public meeting, by the way. The uh, I don't know if they're going to go into camera or not. I guess that's to be determined. But if you want to attend uh, Hamilton City Council this afternoon, uh, and as I say, into this evening, because I'm sure this is going to take up a lot of time, as it should. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Well, the uh, saga continues uh, in the uh, ongoing battle uh, in Ottawa these days. Uh, yesterday, Jody Wilson-Raybould resigned uh, from the Liberal cabinet. She was, uh, at that time, Veterans Affairs Minister. Of course, this uh, goes back to when she was, uh, well, some say, most say, actually demoted from the the role of Justice Minister and Attorney General a few weeks ago. And uh, then, of course, came the shocking story in the uh, the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago from uh, Robert Fife and others, uh, uh, insinuating that there was pressure put on then-Justice Minister Wilson-Raybould uh, by somebody in the Prime Minister's office, and it had to do, of course, with what was going on with the NSC Lavalin file. That's a major company, of course, Quebec-based, which is uh, about to be convicted. It certainly looks that way anyway for offering bribes. Uh, uh, in music. This was in Libya years ago, but nonetheless, it's taken that long for it to actually uh, be adjudicated. And uh, if, in fact, they are convicted, that could have serious economic implications for Quebec and uh, for Canada, for that matter, too. So that's that's the backdrop on this. But yesterday was high drama when uh, when uh, Wilson Raybould resigned uh, and the Prime Minister responded to it in kind. Joining us to talk about everything that's going on and what may happen going forward here, Genevieve Tellier, who is a professor in the School of Political Studies up at the University of Ottawa. Genevieve, thank you so much for the time. Great to talk with you again. Great to talk with you, Bill. This changes from minute to minute. I mean, even from the time that we decided to do this a couple of hours ago, uh, some more twists and turns now with the Parliamentary Committee. Let, let me focus for initially part of our conversation here, Genevieve, if I could to yesterday and the resignation of the minister. Were you shocked by that? Uh, yes, I was shocked. I was surprised. And I'm kind of puzzled. And I tried to get my head around all those those things happening. And, and what I could see is that in one single event, you have so numerous implications. I mean, you're talking about a well-respected uh, minister for the indigenous community that has resigned. Here you're talking about a minister... Uh, where the prime minister guaranteed its minister they could speak the truth. <laughs> I don't know if you recall uh, those sunny ways when the yeah. prime minister was elected. Um, you had also, um, was there some political interference uh, in the conduct of justice? That's not clear. What do we do with corrupt businesses? That's also at the heart of the matter. So, so many angles you could take to try to get around that and try to make sense. And I, no wonder that everybody is speaking and have an idea. But the discussion for me is going in many uh, directions. And what I see is kind uh, of some strong division. So you hear one thing in Quebec, another thing outside of Quebec. Uh, you don't hear a lot uh, cabinet minister, but I'm sure they're puzzled about that. You, we will see what the justice the committee will say today. 
so a lot of uh, various implications. And you're right. I think we could actually trace this back all the way to, uh, to the cabinet shuffle. Uh, and there were a lot of surprised people uh, that, you know, that when she was actually taken away from the, the justice portfolio. Uh, I, I know that, you know, we heard some stories of, well, she's, she's not really a people person. She's kind of difficult to work with. But uh, the impression I got before that announcement or that decision was actually made, Genevieve, was she was very, very capable in her job and very well respected by members of both parties for the work that she was doing. So that, that which many people classed as a demotion, I think caught a lot of people off guard. So it, that, that, that was really the beginning of this, wasn't it? Yes, I think so, and uh, and and she's not pleased with that. And of course, uh, everybody talk, is talking about the demotion. I think it is a demotion, and so she has been active on social media, trying to say, "Well, I was doing a pretty good job." And so the latest, latest was yesterday when she said, "Well, you know what? I won't stand anymore for that, and uh, I have things to say, or I don't back that government." And yes, I agree with you. I think it goes back to the cabinet shuffle. And the, the day that had happened, um, and, and again, one of the things that happened that we didn't really have much of a, a perspective on was she actually released a statement, which is unheard of. I mean, you know, ministers that get moved around rarely do that, but she did. And it was at that time, a lot of people looked at it and say, why is she talking about things like that? First of all, yeah, she said she did a great job in the portfolio. But then she started talking about that position has to be above reproach and, you know, it can't be interfered with politically. And everybody thought, where's that coming from? Then the bombshell from the Globe and Mail about the possible link with the NSC Lavalin. And I think a lot of people started to connect the dots there. Yes, uh, but then again, I still have the why question for me. Why yeah. is she doing that? Uh, how will she benefit from that? And I'm not sure she will be uh, without arm. Uh, yes, I think she will become a, even a, a stronger uh, spokesperson for the indigen- indigenous community. Uh, but will she be able to sh- change government policy? Uh, does she still belong to the Liberal Party? I'm not that sure about that. I don't say that the Liberal Party will will push push her aside from from the party, but it's going to be very difficult for her to remain there. And so, what was she trying to accomplish by attacking publicly the Prime Minister? And so, for me, it's still the why out there. And so, I would be very interesting interested to hear what she has to say. I don't know when. I don't know under what format because it's one thing to go out in the media and speak and it's another thing to go in front of a justice committee or in front of a tribunal so that's also going to be very difficult so and that takes us to yesterday with the resignation and again another statement released uh, and where she thanked and this is kind of a protocol i guess for people that are stepping aside we heard it from scott bryson and others that have followed in this path uh, they, they thank their constituents, of course. Uh, they thank their family members. Uh, in, in her case, of course, she thanked the indigenous communities that have been so supportive of this. Not one mention of the prime minister, and that's unusual. That's unusual, but that speaks volume, I would say, because it really uh, illustrates that there is a sharp difference between uh, her views and the views of the prime minister. And we also heard Justin Trudeau yesterday saying, I'm surprised. Uh, I was not expecting that. It's contrary to what I have heard from her. And so uh, we see both having very different position toward that issue, uh, and this is also striking. So clearly there's something going out, going on. Uh, she's not pleased with the Liberals, uh, and, but the question for me remains, what's next for her? So how could she keep up remaining in politics within the Liberal Party if she has such a strong stance towards uh, the, the Prime Minister and, 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 and its surrounding and, and, and the party? Well, and that seems to be reciprocated in the press release, the media release, rather, that the Prime Minister released yesterday, as, as you know, Genevieve, 
Uh, he, it was a one-line statement uh, that I've accepted the resignation of, of, of Minister uh, Wilson-Raybould. Uh, nothing like thanks for her years of service or her dedication. None of that stuff. It was The next sentence was uh, Minister Sajan is going to take over that portfolio, period, end of sentence. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. So that acrimony is a two-way street here, isn't it? It, it is, and I'm a, a bit surprised from Justin Trudeau because I would have think, thought that he would change a bit uh, the way he behaves so bring be more calm toward that. And yes, uh, we should have seen him thank her for the many years that she has put within the cabinet. Um, so yes, there's something going on, and and I think that the example, uh, the leadership should come from the prime minister, and we don't see that very, uh, very much. He, uh, we see uh, uh, he's uncomfortable with that situation, and as I said before, there are so many issues to that one single event that it seems that the government doesn't know really much on what stands to to take because of those various and multiple implications. And, and obviously they're getting wrapped up in, in what's happening with, uh, with now, of course, just MP uh, Wilson-Raybould uh, and the pushback that that's going to have. And you have to wonder, as you've mentioned, about the implications that's going to have, maybe even not on a national basis, but certainly in British Columbia, which is very much in play in this par- fed- upcoming federal election, isn't it? Yes, uh, British Columbia and Quebec for two different reasons. Uh, of course, yes, in BC. So, first of all, you are, we already have the environmentalists are not very pleased with the, the Liberals. And now, yes, uh, having a strong leader, uh, she's an important figure in BC, uh, having her push aside without very much explanation to that, that could be uh, detrimental for, for the Liberals. But at the same time, if they push uh, support a bit more uh, former minister Wilson Raybould, then there's the Quebec uh, voters who are not pleased with how SNC Lavalin has been treated and uh, are concerned about the consequences of uh, having um, a lawsuit towards that big company, which is a prestigious company in Quebec. Uh, and so we're talking about, I think, it's nearly 10,000 jobs mm-hmm. uh, throughout Canada. And so that's also a concern for Quebec. And, and let's yeah let's morph into that because obviously there's two issues here. What's going to happen with, with the now ex minister, uh, and that seems to have obviously grabbed the headlines. Uh, but that other looming—it's not even looming. I guess it's it's pending. Uh, what's going to happen uh, in with the NFC Lavalin? And, and let's delve into that if we could, and maybe a little inside politics if we could here, Genevieve, because the implication in the Star story was that it was pressure on the attorney general. Uh, from somebody in the PMO. Uh, and the Prime Minister has admitted, uh, subsequent to that, of course, that yes, of course he had discussions uh, with people from uh, NSC Lavalin uh, and also from uh, people in the AG's office. Now, and, and again, I know this may sound like splitting hairs, but apparently talking about it is okay from an ethics standpoint. But if, in fact, there is pressure put on the Attorney General to say, well, this is what I think you should do, and as a matter of fact, I'm demanding that you do that, that's crossing the line. Is, is that a, a fair assessment? Yes, I, I would say it's a fair assessment. Now, the question is why the, minister, the Prime Minister is talking about that. Well, one possible explanation is that the law has changed uh, last year. That's right. We haven't talked about it very much. It's very complex and very technical. And so it would be the first case that would, be, that would fall under this new law. So it's kind of strange of having this new law and not using it for, for new cases that, that appear. And so I would probably, I would assume, probably it's a guess, but I would say uh, Trudeau would simply remind the Justice uh, Minister that uh, this new provision exists. Uh, there are some serious political implication, and this would be just a, a reminder of, of that. Now, uh, is it interference? We're not sure about that. And more broadly, this new piece of legislation was not really discussed publicly, so everybody is kind of 
uh, caught off guard. It was kind of buried in the budget bill, wasn't it? It was buried, uh, and uh, it's not clear why it was there. If you listen to specialists, there are some good reasons because uh, such provision exists in other countries. So we would be kind of an outside uh, outliner. Uh, other countries are doing that. I, Germany, for instance, with Siemens, have gone through that a uh, similar case. And so why not Canada, which is biggest company, and not try to find another solution? So the, the question is, are we still competitive on the international scene? Um, but uh, that, that's part of the problem, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're right. I mean, Germany's done this. The UK just passed this a couple of, of I guess it was about a year and a half or so ago. Mm-hmm. And and on on a philosophical level, Genevieve, you're right. It does make sense. Essentially, uh, what this law does is that there's a provision there that look at if something happens uh, and these people are being charged, as you mentioned, Siemens in in, in Germany, and in our particular case, of course, with, with NSC Lavalin. Uh, see, it basically says, look, you can't decimate the country, even though that may be the legal penalty that's involved, because that's not fair to the employees, and as you mentioned, there's about 10,000 of them there, nor to the stockholders. So they say, look, there's got to be another way, a, a, an exit ramp to that, where there should be a substantial fine. They need to be punished mm-hmm. for this, mm-hmm. but not punish those people. And mm-hmm. and on a philosophical level, that makes all kinds of sense. But the timing of this is, is shall we say, questionable, because this is just around the time that the SNC Lavalin's story was starting to break, and we knew that the court case was impending. And all of a sudden, you know, out of nowhere appears this piece of legislation that says, okay, that we're giving them an exit ramp. Yes, but if we go back to the timing, uh, we could also the qu- t- question the timing of now. Why was not the story reported last fall when it was discussed? Yeah. And that when uh, allegedly the, the, the pressure occurred. And so uh, that's also another concern. So, yes, the, cu- the timing is always bad. I mean, uh, for the next election for the Liberals, uh, for uh, SNC-Lavalin, that there are other lawsuits uh, that will be brought out. Uh, there was a story today in the Quebec newspaper about that. Um, so it's a very complex issue. I don't think that timing, there's a perfect timing for that. Uh, but it's more about uh, cynicism, I would say, that uh, for many voters, maybe it's, again, uh, a government that tries to accommodate uh, big economic interests over uh, and, not, and not bring hard sanctions. Um, so how do people feel? Is there a asymmetry, uh, an unfair advantage for a big corporation that have the means to get the eyes or the, the hair of the uh, of government and other small uh, businesses or, or, or taxpayer, ordinary taxpayer that don't have the same uh, are not uh, are not uh, treated the same way, and so that's part of the big picture, I think. So, how do we deal with those corporations that have behaved badly, and and what's the fair treatment? And as you say, there are some grounds to this new uh, piece of legislation, but at the same time, it's not as clear as uh, white or black. Uh, there are some nuances, and not everybody may have the same view on the, on that issue, and that's why it stirs so many discussions. How much pressure is there on the Justice Committee right now, Genevieve, to actually move forward with these hearings? It is dominated by liberals. They could quash this if they wanted to, but would there be even more public pushback if they did? Probably, yes. Uh, they are under a lot of pressure, but at the same time, it's a very highly partisan committee. So even if the committee decides to go ahead with the hearing, uh, I'm not sure they will benefit 
totally from that because you will see partisanship as is worse, <laughs> uh, I think, because... It becomes a bit of a sideshow, doesn't it? It will be. It will become that. And so if we, if you recall the Gomery Commission, before the, the Gomery Commission, it was a hearing at the Public Accounts Committee. It was not also a very well-managed uh, committee. And so it was only once it was in front of a independent uh, judge, I would say, uh, that things became clearer, clearer, uh, clearer and more orderly discussed and presented. Uh, but if we remain, if that is remain in the hands of the Justice Committee, uh, I don't think it will benefit anyone. We'll see the same uh, outpour, outcry that we have seen in the last days. Uh, so I'm kind of concerned about that. And on top of that, yes, the liberal members on that committee are under strong pressure, especially from their own constituents, constitution. Um, to open uh, the work of the committee to have those hearings. Uh, but everything could happen uh, once they decide to do so. So we'll see how, what happens. Well, I mean, the opposition parties, I mean, especially uh, opposition leader Andrew Scheer, I mean, they're, this, they're acting like sh- you know shmar- sharks that smell blood in the water. I mean, yes. they're, they're going to jump all over this as much sure. as they can. I mean, <laughs> the timing of this couldn't be worse for the sitting government. I mean, there's an election coming up in October. I don't know that they can maintain this. I mean, you know, the way governments are, Genevieve, and the way the Parliament Hill works, uh, there are news cycles. Now, this one's exceeded, uh, you know, the, the usual time yeah. for, for that sort of thing. Uh, but you don't know what's going to happen in the interim and whether or not they can make this a big story. I guess it really depends on what, if anything, uh, Ms. Uh, Wilson-Ribold says when she finally goes public. Yes, and uh, for the moment, the problem for the opposition is that it's a very complex issue. And so when you try to uh, score points on a complex issue, it's not clear that people, everybody will understand what the message that you want to convey. So it will depend on the new events that will unfold. As you said, uh, former Minister Wilson uh, Mayoral may add a new element to it that will help uh, the, the work of the opposition. Uh, but yes, having momentum, it's a hard thing to do. And maybe also you need a good, strong leader uh, in the chamber to ask uh, difficult question to to the government. Uh, for me, there is a parallel to make between the Mike Duffy case and uh, former Prime Minister uh, Harper, and how the opposition was able to monopolize the parent question around that. But at the time, you had the Thomas Malker that was uh, feroz, um, uh, was very good at that. Uh, I don't know if uh, Andrew Shear had the same skill for that uh, specific issue. Uh, we'll see. But as you said, yes, momentum has to be. Um, sustain it and uh, eight months is a short time and it's a long time at the same time so we'll, see. well i can imagine that uh, right now they're sitting around in the caucus from thinking when can we get mm-hmm. that budget out there because that might change <laughs> the channel for us yes i, I agree let's with push you. that to the front page but, but have you seen the caucus is very strong we haven't seen anybody else uh, going out and speaking publicly so they that's are right concerned. and we do see unanimity behind uh, justin trudeau so what in fact what we have we have a former minister that broke rank with uh, the government. Uh, we'll see how it unfolds, but that is pretty unusual to see. Uh, we don't see that very often. Not at all. Mm-hmm. Genevieve, thank you so much. Great to have you on the program again. Thanks for your perspective on this. It's a pleasure. Thanks. Take care. Genevieve Tellier, of course, from uh, University of Ottawa Political Science Department. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.